Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with faculty involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. Two RNA vaccines for SARS-CoV-2 have received emergency use authorization by the FDA, with vaccinations with one of them taking place for workers in healthcare settings this past week. On December 17, 2020, we talked with Dr. Rachel Presti, an associate professor of infectious disease and director of the Infectious Disease Clinical Research Unit at Washington University School of Medicine. Rachel received her MD-PhD at Washington University studying murine cytomegalovirus. She did her residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in infectious disease. She also did a postdoc with Skip Virgin identifying new herpes viruses. She has run clinical trials for HIV, HCV, influenza, and now SARS-CoV-2. Hi, Rachel. I'm happy to have you with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us about yourself? How did you become interested in virology and medical research? I sort of always was. My um, my father did um, data uh, science for um, Boeing, and as part of that, he did computer a lot of computer science. And um, they had access to huge supercomputers back in the seventies and eighties. And as I was growing up, he would um, he would talk to people from all different sort of science. Um, areas and um, come back and say you should you should be a meteorologist or you should be a microbiologist and so it was always sort of a science thing so so um, I guess guess that was sort of the 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 start was that he always um, encouraged me to do something with science and I was always very interested um, and then in um, college I was a biochemistry major um, and just really really always liked. Um, microbiology and virology. I guess um, I spent um, quite a bit of time in that, although I did a lot of chemistry as well. And then, um, and then I uh, came to WashU in 1994 um, to do the MD PhD program, um, and and um, sort of always thought I would be more of a lab person. I worked with Skip Virgin and did work on. Um, uh, latent cytomegalovirus and the virology of that. Um, although, I guess to some extent, that was one of the really exciting things was toward the end of that, we had some data that suggested that interferons blocked reactivation from latency, and there was some interest in um, in um, the pharmaceutical area in, in maybe looking at um, whether or not that could be protective in in uh, transplant patients, or um, and so it was kind of it was kind of interesting even then to think about the sort of translational impact of of um, of your findings, um, and so I, I have kind of a, a winding pathway. So I went back to medical school and finished medical school and did infectious disease. So I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do medicine even, but if I was going to do it, I was going to do infectious disease because um, I, I found that. Um, incredibly fascinating and and always felt like the one nice thing about infectious disease is it's a foreign um, organism that is causing an infection so there's always the hope that you can treat that 
um, in a way that's specific to the organism and not hurt the person. And so unlike most of other medicine, it always felt like there's always a possibility of treating or preventing infectious diseases. And so you could you could help people. And, and that's what I really, really liked about infectious disease. Um, it's also nice because uh, for somebody who likes to do a whole variety of things, uh, infectious disease is always changing and you always get something new. Um, maybe you don't always need something as new as um, SARS-CoV-2 in my life, but um, but it, it's always it's always interesting. You always have a new issue. You always have a new problem to solve. And um, and then we also always have um, new um, therapies that are being developed. So new antibiotics, new vaccines, new treatments, um, new strategies for dealing with infectious diseases. So um, so I, I like that a lot. I did go back into the lab after fellowship. Um, and what I did find eventually was um, I started looking for new viruses again with Skip Virgin. And uh, what I liked about looking for new viruses was the patient interaction and the interaction with clinicians who were um, trying to identify the reason that somebody had some clinical syndrome and, um, and had collected samples. And then we looked for new viruses. And, you know, the, the lab pathway was to study the viruses and what I liked was studying the people. So um, that was about when I changed um, course again and, and really went towards um, clinical research um, where, where, you, where you're actually interacting with people all the time. Um, and, so, and then luckily I've had the opportunity to, to um, transfer that into also um, much more translational research, not just straight um, clinical trials. To follow up on that, can you describe a little bit of the work you've been doing after your postdoc um, and before COVID hit in, in March? So, um, so we've been, we've had a clinical trials unit that was predominantly an AIDS clinical trials group since 87 at Washington University. And so um, so I started working with them, and I started out doing clinical trials with um, HIV, and so um, treatments for people who developed, you know, had had resistance to a lot of the drugs. We got access to some of the newer um, agents, and and were able to treat people, and that was really, really very satisfying to be able to to take somebody who couldn't get undetectable and be able to give them a new drug and have it be so powerful that. Um, they, that even if they didn't take it exactly the way they were supposed to, they could they could get undetectable. Um, and um, so as as part of that, about that time, they started developing um, new therapies for hepatitis. Um, and since so many of our HIV infected um, patients were um, co-infected with hepatitis B or hepatitis C, um, I took over doing a lot of the clinical trials for hepatitis C. Um, and, um, and that was incredibly, I was incredibly fun, um, and moved really, really fast. It was almost like HIV in, in, um, you know, on fast forward. So instead of, you know, decades of research to get to therapies, you know, we had, you know, a couple of years before we had new therapies for hepatitis C that were, um, much safer, much better tolerated and much more effective than interferon, which is what we'd been using for a while. Um, so I started doing that um, and um, continued to do the HIV work. Um, and then 
then I always had a little bit of an interest in maintaining some translational work. And so we we did some work looking at the microbiome um, with folks from Skip's lab. Um, so Scott Hanley was one of the main ones I worked with to look at, at how the microbiome changed and how that might have impacted on some of the pathology of, of um, HIV um, infection. So started doing some microbiome work um, and looking, looking again at sort of immune responses and inflammation in people who are HIV infected. Uh, I guess uh, we've, we've managed to transition as well. So continuing to do a lot of basic, or a lot of clinical trials work looking at new treatments, um, but moving into the translational area. So looking at uh, obtaining um, clinical samples that can be evaluated in, in the research lab um, at, at a much more detailed and higher level than you would ever sort of evaluate them on a clinical um, scale and see if we can figure out um, why why do people have certain phenotypes? Why do people not have good immune um, function restored? Um, why do they have higher levels of inflammation? Um, and so on. Um, and then we started working more recently with um, Ali Alabidi to look even more in the translational realm at how influenza vaccine works. Um, and we're able to do that in a way where um, we could um, enroll people who hadn't recently gotten influenza vaccine um, to get influenza vaccine and then get um, even more um, detailed clinical samples. So not just blood, but to get lymph nodes and bone marrow and really understand what is the immunology and the long-term immunology of response to influenza vaccine in order to try to improve that. Um, and so because of that, we were positioned pretty well then when COVID came around to do the whole gamut of things from from basic um, cohort analysis to uh, collecting samples for translational and, and basic science work um, to trying to understand now how the how the COVID vaccines work um, using similar methods that we're using with uh, with uh, Ali. Right, right. So to follow up on that, can you tell us in a little bit more detail some of the different COVID-19 related research that you've been doing? Um, sure. So so the very first thing we did when it became apparent that, um, that SARS-CoV-2 would actually become uh, an infection that we're seeing quite a bit of in the U.S. So back in March was to establish some cohorts of people who um, were presenting to the ER with symptoms concerning for COVID, um, enroll them and then collect longitudinal samples from people, um, both who tested positive um, and, and some who tested negative as well. So comparative samples. Um, so, so we wound up, I think, with 500 people enrolled to that cohort. Not everybody has maintained long-term follow-up, but we have, we have samples then from long-term follow-up from those folks. A similar cohort was established then because of work we were doing with Jeff Henderson uh, to try to get convalescent plasma up and running as a therapy. Um, part of that when it was initially being developed was the need to let the blood banks know who had cleared infection, um, so when they needed documented infection and documented clearance for 
safety purposes and then had detectable antibodies. Um, and, and we've enrolled a couple hundred folks in um, that cohort. Um, once the blood banks were able to take over that analysis on their own, um, we continued to follow people as a longitudinal cohort um, looking at antibody responses and then collecting information about long-term symptoms and um, collecting blood and saliva um, for banking so that people can look at, at those sort of longitudinal samples. Um, so those are the first first things we did. Um, we, we also very quickly got involved um, through Steve Miller with Express Scripts in a study at the time um, that the treatment that everyone thought would work was hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, um, maybe with azithromycin. And we designed a study um, with Jane O'Halloran and myself to, to compare those therapies. So there were randomized control trials going on already. And, and what we wanted to do was look at a sort of treatment um, uh, strategy study. So we, we had four different arms hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without azithromycin um, and enrolled enrolled people to that study until um, until the data started coming out that it, it, it really wasn't, none of those were particularly effective. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that was hurt, I think, by sort of how political things got. And so it was hard to hard to enroll people as well. Um, so about the time that that was going on, was when we first heard that there would be vaccine studies. Um, they were initially supposed to start in July. I think they actually did wind up starting more in August. Um, and through the work we were doing with the AIDS clinical trials groups, those are NIH funded networks and um, and the uh, they established a coronavirus vaccine prevention network uh, that, that was a, a group of HIV um, clinical trials and vaccine clinical trials networks that the NIH was already um, supporting. So, um, so we got involved in that. Uh, we're working with St. Louis University as well um, as another site um, for those um, and, and started getting ready to, to be able to do the huge phase three clinical trials for, um, for COVID vaccines. Great. Um, and did you also do a, a trial for any kind of monoclonal antibody therapy or no? Oh, yeah. Sorry. We did that too. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So we did, we've done a couple of different trials then. Um, we've done trials with monoclonal antibodies, um, both inpatient and outpatient. Um, and so the, the outpatient clinical trials, um, we're looking at the Lilly antibody. The inpatient clinical trials, we're looking at the Regeneron antibody. Um, and so, so we, we did those for several months. Um, we actually are still part of an adaptive outpatient clinical trial um, that, that did the Lilly antibody and is now um, uh, starting to think about pulling in other antibodies or other therapeutics that could be used in the outpatient setting. Um, so we're, we're on a bit of a pause on that, but, um, but are expecting to have new agents to test. Um, in the future. So part of the uh, BAM-Lenimivimab um, approval for EUA was some of the data that was collected as part of, of those studies. Um, so, so we're sort of eagerly looking for new, easier to administer um, outpatient treatments for um, COVID. 
Um, I guess the, the other thing that we've been involved in is, um, is an inpatient active one study to look at uh, different immunomodulatory agents in combination with remdesivir um, to, um, to treat people with uh, more severe COVID requiring oxygen and, and, and requiring hospitalization. Okay. Wow, that's a lot of trials. <laughs> yeah. We also, I guess, also did the the expanded access programs for convalescent plasma and remdesivir uh, starting in April, May, um, to get those to the point where they got were available on um, emergency use um, authorization. Right. So I guess to take a step back, more generally, um, what has been the most exciting moment in your career so far? It's sort of more like little moments. Um, I talked before about about starting clinical trials and um, and getting to give people a new protease inhibitor called Darunavir. And I remember we had a participant, and I was, um, I, you know, she just did not like taking medications, and and this was a twice a day medication, and she would come back, and I'd realize, oh my gosh, you've only taken half of your pills, and you've returned half of your pills, and so. When her viral load came back, um, it wasn't undetectable, but it was less than 100. And I thought, this could really work. Like, I could really help people. And this is going to really help people who have difficulty taking med medications. Um, so there's things like that. There's, you know, every time you get um, a clinical trial result that is able to change um, clinical care, I think, I think that's always exciting. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard because it's not like that aha moment that you talk about in, in the lab where you think, this is where I knew that I had the answer. Um, you know, it's more of a slog, but, but when you actually uh, realize that all that work you did on, you know, study X is going to result in actually better treatment for somebody, that, that was just really exciting. So, so getting to work on the new hepatitis drugs was, was, um, was fun. We've we've been involved with long-acting injectable drugs for HIV for treatment and prevention. And you know, anytime you get something that is superior to the current standard of care, you feel like this is helping people. And so, so it's like little things like that 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 um, that make it you know just really really fun. So. <laughs> Um, and I guess conversely, what is the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a scientist or as a doctor, and how did you overcome it? So I think the hardest thing for me was um, the decision to stop working in the lab. Um, so I I loved working in the lab, and um, and you know I had I had a lot of fun. I I really enjoyed it. I liked what I was doing. I felt like it was important. Um, it, it all sort of happened around the same time that, um, that I had kids and, and I guess, I guess what it came down to was I was getting more, um, satisfaction out of the clinical work that I was doing than the lab work. And, um, so, but it was just really, really hard to give up that idea that I would be, you know, the triple threat with the, the basic science lab and the, the clinical work and the teaching, although I was never, I was never great at teaching. <laughs> and um, so, so what I, I think what, what really sort of helped me make that decision was both the support of my division chiefs, 
Um, and, and, um, and just thinking like, what is it that is worthwhile leaving these like new children that I have that I absolutely adore? Um, and you know, what is it, what from a professional standpoint is, is important enough that, that you, um, that you, you need to do that and not spend all this time with these, these people that you these little people who, who um, you've fallen in love with. Um, and I guess to follow up on that, if you had a chance to ask your older self, say you 70 year old, you know, getting closer to retirement, one question, what would it be? How, you know, how long um, can you, are, you know, are you still productive? How long, how long do you stay doing this? Um, and, and, Still feel like you're um, contributing. Um, so, you know, I guess I would want to know, um, you, you know, some of this is is really is really hard and really tiring and really stressful because um, I feel so I I feel very responsible um, for all my clinical trials participants um, for my patients. And um, what I what I would want really would be confirmation that um, that at the end it it was it was worth it was worth all the worry that I actually did make a difference, but I felt like I made a difference in someone's life. And then I guess uh, turning more back to the COVID nineteen pandemic, how has it affected you as an individual? Oh, I've never been more busy in my whole entire life. Um, I've never felt. Um, more responsible for not just my own little, um, well, my own little world became um, became something that was really important to 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 like a huge part of the population, I guess. And so um, I I felt you know early on in the pandemic was incredibly difficult because I felt like I needed to find the studies. I needed to be able to bring um, treatments to, um, to to people because, you know, we weren't knowing how to, we didn't know how to treat it. We didn't know um, what to do. Um, and then, and then when the vaccines became available, the vaccine studies, you know, we just really wanted to make sure that we were enrolling the right people, um, that we were getting the word out that there was enough, um, information coming out that that people knew what we were doing and that they would trust it at the end of the day um so so i guess i guess i i what changed the most for me was i was continuing to do a lot of clinical trials but i um have done a whole lot more actual outreach into the community and community and so media and talking with community groups and and not just um, not just doing the the research, which is what I'm used to doing and and feel very comfortable with, but actually figuring out how to communicate that to people so that they understand what we're doing, so that when we do have treatments or vaccines, that people feel like um, they were done well and they were done by people who um, cared and were honest and 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 really had their best interests at heart. So have you managed to find any free time during the pandemic? Have you picked up any new hobbies or have you just been working? 
I've mainly been working, but the one thing that I did start doing um, was was really long walks. And so um, I initially that was a stress um, release, and now it's just a habit. Um, but uh, I I think I know every house in our neighborhood. <laughs> um, I've seen them in all seasons. I think there was a um, there was a health. Uh, initiative that happened right in March about the same time that that COVID really became real, where they were encouraging people to do, you know, 10,000 steps a day. And so I thought, I can do that. And so I went through that and then I just kept on going. And so um, so that's the, the one new thing that I've done. It You know, things changed a lot. Um, my husband used to travel a lot more and obviously that all went away and he was working from home and the kids were doing school from home. And, um, and instead of, it kind of got simpler to some extent. I mean, we were, we were working a lot, but, but so much of that, um, you know, driving around and feeling like you're just being a crazy person when you have teenage kids, um, taking them here and there and, and, and different places and trying to make sure that, um, you know, that everyone's home a time, you know, and, and can have dinner together. All that went away because they were all always home. And so, um, so it, it, it became easier. But yeah, walking is sort of the one thing that I've started doing. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, the kids play the piano and the violin and I play the piano too. So we, we try to do that um, together some too. So. So um, I guess to follow up on that, sort of as a virologist and as a doctor, how do you make decisions about how to keep yourself, your family, and your community safe from COVID? How do you sort of think about the risks um, involved with doing different things? Um, I try to listen to the epidemiologists. I, you know, I try to listen to the, the folks who do a lot of occupational health and infection prevention. Um, and and uh, you know and try to really think about what the science is and recognize that we don't we're not always right initially and that things might change and you might have to change your practices um, when we have better information. So um, so initially, you know, we weren't we weren't wearing masks a whole lot because that wasn't the recommendation. And as you know, as soon as it became clear that that was actually going to help. Um, we, we moved to doing that, um, making sure that the kids had their masks and, and that they were doing what they needed to do, um, when they, when they were out, um, in either in school or, um, both of them did, both of them do athletics. So, um, making sure they always had a mask that fit and they were comfortable with. Um, so yeah, I mean, I try to, I try to keep up with, um, what the guidance is, I think initially I was very obsessive about that and then realized that that was making me crazy. And so, um, you know, we, it's nice being in the infectious disease division because you get, you get all the advice and, and you get, you have people in your division who know, um, more about certain things and, and they're available and, um, accessible to, to, to give you the answers of what you need. Um, so I try not to worry about it. I try to do the things I can do. I can try to do the things that I can control, wash my hands, wear a mask. Um, you know, don't, we haven't traveled, um, anywhere. Um, we try to avoid gatherings. We did, 
we did a lot of take out and um, and still do um, and um, figure out what what feels safe and feels right and balanced to us. Great. Well, I guess we're wrapping up. Um, any last messages for our listeners? Any thoughts about sort of the vaccine? Uh, you know, thinking about how that might um, end the COVID-19 pandemic. What do you want to tell people? Um, I want to tell people that they still need to wear masks and they still need to socially distance because our numbers are still appalling. Um, you know, we've sort of flattened out a little bit, but we flattened out at just a really high um, level. And I, we just can't handle, the hospitals can't handle another surge on top of what, what they're dealing with right now. Um, I think the vaccines were, I mean, they're so exciting. Um, it's really amazing and, and really um, a tribute to sort of like years and years of science that's been going on to be in a position where we could have vaccines that could be tested, um, that could be developed this quickly and could be tested this quickly. Um, and and I, I mean, I firmly believe the data looks great and it looks like they work but they aren't going to work till everyone gets them and they're not going to work um, immediately. And, and so it, it's, it could be a really, really, really rough couple of months until we get to the point where people are, are getting vaccinated and, and we have enough people who are immune that, that we can actually start to see um, the impact of that. So. All right, Rachel. Well, thank you very much. Rachel's previous experience running clinical research trials for many other viruses allowed her to quickly pivot earlier this year to run a number of trials looking at the ability of different drugs, therapies, and vaccines to prevent or treat SARS-CoV-2 infection. These trials also serve as an important source of samples for translational research trying to understand the immune correlates of SARS-CoV-2 protection and COVID pathogenesis. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackwright, and thanks for listening. You can find us on most podcast platforms or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologist at gmail.com.